At the Home Depot, the start of spring means it's time to add Vigoro and EarthGrow colored mulch to your list and your cart. Right now, get five bags at a special buy, just 10 bucks. Mulch helps retain soil moisture in shades of red, brown, or black. Hey, it's nice out. Today is the day for doing and mulching. With Vigoro and EarthGrow colored mulch, five bags, 10 bucks. Only at the Home Depot. More saving, more doing. Color selection varies by store. Limit 60 per customer, continental US only. Sabrosura, Hello, everyone. This is Pam of Cafe Con Pam, the bilingual podcast that features fearless Latinas, Latinos, Latinx, and people of color that break barriers, change lives, and make this world a better place while living in the U.S. Welcome to episode number 50 of Café Compa. In today's show, we have a conversation with Fernando Lapos. Fernando is a London-based Mexican designer with a BA in product design from Central St. Martin's, and he was graduated in 2012. He was born in Paris, and his work is deeply rooted in material, experimentation, and craft with a great emphasis on self-production and the DIY culture. Fernando strives to transform materials which are cheap, readily available, and often waste or perishable matter, enabling him to make crossovers between product design and gastronomy. His projects aim to raise questions regarding whole system thinking, ephemerality, patterns of consumption, and the politics of food production through the creation of design objects, performances, and videos. Fernando is currently working on Totomoxtle. Totomoxtle is a project inspired by the relationship of Mexico with its maíz by creating surfacing material from naturally colored native corn husks. The process is simple. The husks are flattened and glued onto veneer or MDF, which can be sawed or laser cut to create tiles or marquetry for interiors and furniture. Apart from creating a sustainable material, the project also aims to raise awareness about the uncertain future of heirloom maize and the people that harvest it during traditional methods in an increasingly globalized world. Listeners, you might be wondering right now, why is she talking to a London-based designer? Well, I think that Fernando's project is important. I obviously, you already know, I am a corn lover. I'm an elote lover. And when I saw his project, I was really touched because just the thought that corn is disappearing from this earth was really alarming. So I will let you listen to the interview where he goes deep, guys. We He really explains what is going on with the corn. And it is relevant for us because... He explains the type of corn that we consume in the U.S., that it's almost fully genetically modified and how bad that is for us. But I'll let you listen to that. Before we dive into the whole episode, I'm going to let you listen to the audio of his intro video to his project so you can get more of a background story on what the project is all about. This project was on a contest, and if he won this, it wasn't a contest. It was, yeah, I guess, I guess it's it's a contest, and it was a judged contest. And if he was selected as the winner, he was going to get some funding for Los Agricultores de, de Mexico that he's trying to help. Actually, the winner has been announced, and I'm going to tell you at the end of the show if he won or not. So you have to wait until the end and check him out because it's pretty cool. Not only the corn stuff that he does, but also the other stuff that he does. 
During this episode, he tells us that he's currently in Italy and he talks about the cafe pagato culture, which here in the US, it's the pay it forward culture, how somebody pays for the drink of the person behind us. And this is something that is also practiced in Italy where he currently resides. And he, this is, he thinks that's super cool. We have cool conversation about having different talents because he has many talents. He's a, an incredible filmmaker and a photographer. And he is also, he is a food designer in a way. He is a visual designer and that makes you a well-rounded person. However, at the same time, we talk about how it is important to pick one and hone into that skill. And then the others will be aids, will be tools for, for what you decide to do. And I can't wait to hear what your thoughts are on it. Let me know. And you will hear first the audio of his video, and then we're going to go straight into the interview. Enjoy. You're likely to have eaten corn, but did you know that in fact, corn is considered the first man-made plant? It was actually made from a mutation of a wild plant, Teosintle, a small sprig with only a few grains. Over nine millennia, it was transformed into modern corn by Mesoamericans. In this process, it became one of the most genetically diverse crops in the world. Mexico alone has more than 60 different varieties of corn, and their differences in colors and flavors are key to the gastronomical and cultural identity of the country. I'm Fernando La Paz, a Mexican designer based in London, and my project, Totomosle, is inspired by the relationship of my country with its maize. What I did was create a material from naturally colored native corn husks. The process is simple. The husks are flattened and glued onto fiberboard, which can be sawed or laser cut to create tiles and marquetry for interiors and furniture. Apart from creating a sustainable material, the project aims to raise awareness about the uncertain future of heirloom corn. And it focuses on the people that are struggling to harvest it with traditional methods in today's globalized world. Mexico has seen its corn market dominated by imported American corn, which is cheaper than Mexican corn because of subsidies from the U.S. Department of Agriculture. That's meant that Mexican farmers are competing with prices they can't match and effectively are unable to make a living. The market has been inundated with genetically modified seeds and herbicides that often lead to land erosion. Farmers were encouraged to swap native seeds for supposedly superior hybrids. This economic pressure is resulting in the disappearance of native corn. To make matters worse, the modified yellow corn has been cross-pollinating with the native varieties, thus contaminating the ancient gene pool. This project is intended to create more income for farmers by making an inexpensive secondary product, the veneer, using husks that would otherwise go to waste. This will help them have the financial independence to keep planting native seeds and decide how they want to feed themselves. The small town of Tonawixla in the southwest of Mexico has proven to be the ideal partner to test the project because it represents the impact that global trade can have in a very small indigenous community. Tonawixlands have essentially lost most of their native seeds and their farmable communal land to erosion due to abandoning their traditional methods and abusing herbicides. A collaboration with a local seed bank is providing a new supply of colored native seeds and the first harvests are scheduled for the fall of 2017. A training program for the Totomoxle veneering techniques will follow a few months after. 
I believe the future food designers need to go beyond the table and focus on the whole system of food production. A continued loss of crop diversity will make us more vulnerable to global crop failures and super plagues in the future. Winning this award will help me fight for the preservation of the original strains of Mesoamerican corn, an issue that concerns us all. Okay, so let's backtrack a little and at, tell me what's your story, where, where you come from. You're a Mexican designer, but th your background is really interesting. So let's take us back. Yeah, sure. Um, my parents are Mexican. Okay. Uh, but my dad's side of the family is French-Italian. So I am sort of a third-generation Uh, Italian on my father's side and then on my mother's side I've been a Mexican for generations and generations and I I was born in Paris actually nice um, because my my dad is a baker so um, so when when he was um, working as a as a baker in Paris that's when my my mom and dad had me so I, I'm French born but Uh, we moved back to Mexico when I was about a year and a half, and I lived there until I was 16. So I'm sort of half half French, half Mexican. But you, you call yourself and, Mexican? Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, both my parents live now in Mexico. Okay. And uh, my first language is Spanish. And I mean, culturally, yeah, definitely Mexican number one and um i guess french would follow but i've been living in the uk in london for the past nine and a half years so um so you know i'm i'm, I'm part british as well <laughs> that's awesome so i get that hard <laughs> <laughs> right how did your career happen because you had a lot of influence from like your grandfather even right Yeah, that's correct. Um, yeah, my uh, my great grandfather was a was a chocolatier and a pâtissier from Turin uh, in Italy, and so he would make sweets and caramels and chocolates. And then he migrated to Mexico uh, right before the Mexican Revolution and started working there in a French bakery. So then he learned sort of the, the French style of baking. And Mexico. And in Mexico City, yeah, at okay. the turn of the of the 20th century, basically. And from that moment onwards, uh, my grandfather took over and then my father and his brothers. Um, so when I was growing up as a kid, I was always very much in tune with cooking and um, being in the bakery with all of them and you know the my, my, my family has a bit a long history of of uh, being really sort of in tune with gastronomy um, but then my father is, is uh, apart from from studying baking uh, is also trained as an architect so um, so I had that influence as well and and my mother is a painter so so growing up it was always either surrounded by paint uh, or beautiful <laughs> furniture and very good yeah. food. Yeah, so <laughs> I 
I guess uh, I was from a very young, young age um, sort of trained to be very sensorially aware, I suppose, to to beauty and, and, and fantastic tastes. <laughs> For sure. And did you, so what did you study? So you, you were in, in Mexico City until you were 16 and then you went to France, right? Yeah, then I, yeah, then, um, so my parents divorced when I was, when I was young and then my dad got a job, uh, after selling his company, he, he sort of got a kind of like part sabbatical, part consulting job, uh, back in Paris for a year. So, um, my sister and I moved with him and, um, and I finished my high school in, in Paris. So I was there for a about four years and uh and then I um wanted to specialize in, in arts or design and I found that the the schooling in France was maybe a little bit too theoretical for it was too much theory for my taste. Really? So um yeah, yeah. It's uh it's I guess I don't know, it's 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 a style of schooling. Um the French are very very into their theory and their history. Mm. And I, I found that a little bit limiting. So, um, so I got, uh, I got accepted into Central St. Martin's in London and, um, uh, I moved there to, to do my, my bachelor's degree in, um, uh, in design in product design. Why London? Why didn't you go back to Mexico city? Um, you know what? I have no idea. It's one of those decisions that you take when you're 18 years old, yeah. uh, which are, I don't know, I guess, I guess the, the design scene in Mexico city wasn't what I was looking for. And back then London, I mean, it still is, but you know, L London was a very thriving city in terms of design, very free, very young. Um, and then the, the schools were very, hands-on very manual uh the, the the british system has a has a really interesting way of teaching where uh i mean it's very very different from the american system of, uh you you basically almost classes it's 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 almost exclusively pro project-based you just do you have to look for your own solutions and and it can be very brutal if you're not sort of driven that way Problem but it, it, yeah yeah, yeah, I guess so. But it's very pragmatic. Um, that's something that I really sort of applaud, applaud from the British education system. So I don't know, it just spoke to me and, and I decided to move to London and, you know, Central St. Martins is, uh, you know, one of those sort of best schools in the world for those, those for design. So, so, uh, I don't know that, I guess that's, that's what inspired me to move there. I, I, I'd actually never been to London before going there. So I just oh, moved really? blindly. Yeah, never. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> yeah. So did you have to move there, or how does it work? Because here in the U.S., you when mm -hmm. people go to college or university, you basically – I mean, most times you move, and they have, like, dorm rooms and whatever. Does it work the same up there? Uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's, there's student halls. Um. I don't know. I mean, I think there's not, there's, it's not like the campus life, like in the United States, you know, uh, mm -hmm. I mean, maybe in other parts, but not in London, maybe in other parts of England. I don't know. London is its own little bubble that is very different from the rest of the UK. 
Um, yeah, but I, I went straight into, I didn't go through halls. I went straight into house sharing and then, you know, like was, was just completely out of the campus. The, um, yeah, I mean, there's not really a campus per se, so. Okay. So yeah, I don't know. I don't know. It's just, it's different. <laughs> totally different. Cool. Yeah. And why product design? Um, at the time I didn't know if studying fine art or not. And, uh, I, I don't know. I, I was doing sculpture and I was doing things that would be maybe close to fine art, but they would always have some sort of functionality. I always started, started to give it some sort of function when I was studying all the way from high school. So I mean, it was a combination of seeing that and also I think my father being slightly worried about how I was going to make a living later <laughs> that uh, sort of pushed me away from pure fine arts into Just something art. that would be, yeah, to something that would be a little bit more uh, industry-based, I mean, in, in real sort of like production. But something that is particular of London and especially Central St. Martins it, and that is very, very different from the United States and especially very different from Mexico is that it's not really industrial design. You know, I, we weren't, we weren't really learning to make, you know, I don't know, industrially manufactured products. It was more about, it was more about thinking. I mean, I guess some, some people call it design thinking. It's, it's, yeah, it's sort of, how to solve problems, but it could be all sorts of problems, you know, not only sort of mechanical or, or, um, commercial problems. It could be, um, you know, anything from, I don't know, um, something that would be more about, uh, improving the life of a certain demographic or developing a new material or, sustainability issues or I don't know like I said it, it was very open-ended and it's almost like you made your own diploma really which was something yeah which was really something that I was looking for and there was a really big emphasis on being on the workshop every day instead of being on a classroom they push you from a really young age to to start to find your own interest and your own style I guess is it better, do you think, to teach that way? I think at that level it was. I don't think, for example, I would have liked that uh, in high school or, or middle school because that's that's really the point where you're, you know, you just need to sit down and, and learn <laughs> from someone, you know? You're too young. Yeah. But I think once you start to become an adult and, and, and are able to take your own decisions and to be formed as, as, as your own person – uh, it's very important to be able to find yourself and to find your own style. And that's something that I think, uh, France and I mean, Mexico, not at all, you know, it's, it's, uh, in, 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 in France and in Mexico in particular, it's very much about, um, learning from a master or learning right. from someone older, you know, right. whereas in London, um, there's no, there's no right or wrong way of doing things you know it doesn't matter if it's already been done by by a great master if you find your own way of retelling that story mm -hmm. make it your own and that's that's something that's very um 
Yeah, that's something that that is very uh, English in a way. They're very pragmatic in that sense. Yeah, and, fa- and forward thinking, I would say. Yeah. Like they're not trying to stick to like history just because it was done before. That's super cool. Because, I mean, mm-hmm. it allows you to expand your thinking and other people's as well. Because with what you're coming up with, you're also influencing whoever else gets exposed to your findings. Yeah, I think, you know, I think I think what's what's interesting about the about, um, I guess, this 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 degree is that they teach you more to make your own methodology. They teach you to make your own and to find your own system of approaching whatever, whatever task you're approaching. So you're not going to have a formula that you apply to every single thing or you're not going to be the expert of a particular thing you're gonna you're gonna basically have a series of tools that are gonna be able to to teach you or or to allow you to to unpiece a problem or 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 just kind of find us your own solution or your own approach uh to whatever topic you're being faced with that's awesome what did you face in mexico Oh, nothing. I mean, I was probably on the on the privileged side of things in Mexico, mm-hmm. but uh, it's something that makes me very uncomfortable. So, um, so Just I think see when it happens to others, yeah, obviously. Um, I don't know. I think uh, in Mexico, I think Mexico's a, a different story from the states. We have a we have a very sort of heavy history with. Um, or colonial past that is still very much alive. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's very, no matter how open-minded you are, it's very hard to break those uh, sort of barriers and stigmas that you're placed in depending on your social class. And your social class is totally linked to your ethnicity, no? Yes. So, I mean, I guess if you want to go into it, um, I have more of a European descent. Mm-hmm. So I am... Yeah, I mean, I, I, you know, um, I, I could be, you know, if if I'm in a in a tourist resort, people will probably speak to me in English. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, obviously, this is something that I've always been very aware of. But um, I think I'm very grateful that my parents never, never saw any any prejudice like that, and never passed it on to me. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think I was very fortunate to be able to leave Mexico at an age where you start to to see these things. You know, I think I think when I left Mexico, I was still quite like very much a child and and very <laughs> pure in that sense. You know, mm-hmm. um, so I think uh, you know it's around it's around when you when you're a teenager when you start to see these differences and when and when you start to be uh, sort of socially coerced into into the system so i was luckily far away from that and i think that has kept me with a much more open mind in that sense let's keep on with your story how did you because you've done so many super cool projects let's talk about the sugar one so how how did that happen that started because i i wanted to work with real glass in in school and uh, my my university didn't have glass glass blowing workshops, 
So I started to look for, I don't know, I had this like sort of crazy idea of just, it was almost my, it was almost more like a, like a, like a set that I wanted to make in glass and photograph. I don't know. I was just trying things out and I was doing my research to try and um, source a glass blower. And in London, in, in central London, it was, you know, there's maybe only, only 10 of them that are still blowing glass within London. And uh, it was just, it was just prohibitively expensive. It was just so expensive to get it blown. So, um, and you were still in school? Yeah, I was maybe on my first or second year of school. Ah, okay. And, um, so I decided to try and look for a, a solution of something that could be done safely and very cheaply, and that would look like glass. And I remember reading something, or I don't, I can't remember how I came across this information, but I found out that. Uh, back in the day for special effects in, in cinema and, and, and TV, they would, um, you know, when they were, they would do a, a breakaway prop. So whenever they would break a, a glass bottle over someone's head or someone would jump through a window, it was made out of sugar. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's how I made the special, eff- that's how they made special effects at the beginning. And that gave me the idea to start to basically try to imitate Glass blowing techniques, but using sugar. And I, sugar. Yeah. And I started very sort of in a very raw manner, just with a pipe. And, you know, I um, started looking on YouTube and eventually I started to get better and better. And um, because I wasn't a product design course, my teachers sort of pushed me into making it more of a, you know, more, more of a, more of a, product per se or or something that wouldn't be so so abstract because at the beginning i just had this big bubbles of you know sugar glass sugar (laughs) yeah um so i started to adapt the the techniques that i was learning in school uh that were meant for industry so things like rotational molding or uh, blow molding uh slip casting which are used a lot in ceramics Rotational molding is used for making hollow toys and things like that. I made out of plastic. So I started to take those principles and instead of using plastics or resins or things like that, I started using sugar. And um, I started to develop these glasses uh, that were made out of sugar. And I had sort of my, my first breakthrough because I was um, – so basically in England, you have a lot of free time when you're in school and uh, you're expected to, you know, just focus on on your own project, on your own, on your on your own time. But I thought I would get more out of my experience in London if I started to intern and to have like actually like a professional practice while I was studying. So I, I would go to school maybe two days a week. Then the rest of the week, I was uh, working full time for a very talented designer. Her name is Bethan Wood, and um, and she was a really big supporter of me from the very beginning. And uh, she was organizing a, an exhibition for the London Design Festival. This was back in uh, 2011, 
And she asked me if we could use these glasses for the opening. And she kind of pushed me into really getting the machine ready to work and everything. And, uh, and we, and we made it. So I, 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 you know, I would go and work with her during the day and then in the evening I would keep working on my, on my, on my project, my machine. And by the end of that summer, uh, I ended up making about 200 glasses and we had them at the exhibition and there was a lot of press that came and, and, uh, I mean, she's already, she was already like a very well-established designer at the time. So there was a lot of very important press coming and that's sort of what gave me my, my first breakthrough. And, uh, this was maybe a year before graduating. So, uh, okay. so my last year of graduation, uh, sorry, my last year of school, I was working for another studio and then I was just perfecting this technique and, uh, when I graduated, I basically set up a business that was making all sorts of edible glassware for events and alcohol brands and things like that. And um, yeah, I guess the idea the idea behind this glassware is that you you make a glass which is obviously made out of sugar, very sweet. But I would work with mixologists and bartenders to make a cocktail that would be extra bitter and that would balance out the bitterness with the sweetness of the glass and at the end you could eat the whole thing. So yeah, that's that's what I was doing uh, maybe for the first couple of years after after graduating college. I was, I was doing all sorts of events and um, sort of creative catering services for alcohol brands and companies and all sorts of things like that. And, and then what happened? And then I started to get a bit frustrated because I realized that I was starting to become a bit of a glorified catering service. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> so that's not what I wanted. Because you were using a lot of food stuff. Yeah, I think it was a bit strange. I think I was very well timed in the sense that right at the time when I started to do all my sugar work, there was this sort of new discipline that started to be legitimized in design, which is food design. Um, food design, food design has been a thing for almost 20 years now. Um, probably the one, the first sort of self-proclaimed food designer was a guy called Marti Guiche, a, a guy from Barcelona, started doing it in, in 1997. And he was sort of one of the first ones that started to say, look, I'm not a chef, I'm not a designer, let's apply the same sort of methods of designing an object, uh, but let's go towards, let's use food and or, or let's put our efforts into, yeah, but not necessarily and not always. I think food design, this is the thing, food design is still quite a, a new discipline and, it, and it's hard to pinpoint exactly what it is. Um, uh, there's people that are a lot more concentrated on the experience of eating. Uh, and that's sort of how I started with the sugar. But I was also very interested in using food as an actual building material and to apply manufacturing techniques to food to make things that look like objects, but then as a, as a second discovery, you find out that you can eat them. 
Um, okay. So, have you been criticized for using food? Not really. Um, maybe for using sugar, because a lot of people, you know, say that it's not good for Sugar's health. Bad for you. Yeah. I mean, obviously, I totally agree. You know, you should definitely not be having one of my glasses every week. But, you know, well, yeah. for a special <laughs> like cake, for a special occasion, it's all right. And to be honest, uh, in one of my, one of my, every one of my glasses, uh, there's about 50 grams of sugar. And in a Coca-Cola, there's about wow. 45. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're pretty sugar you know, loaded. Yeah. I mean, you just don't realize how much sugar you're eating and drinking, but it's not that much, you know, at least I, I, I at least you, in my case, you're having the sugar and nothing else, you know, exactly what you're putting in your body, you know? Yeah, for sure. Okay, so you you were kind of like you were bored with the whole sugar thing, and then the food designer you were kind of like positioned in the food designer kind of, I guess, uh, industry. I guess, uh, I guess so. Yeah. Had yeah, but one. I mean, you're you're a lot of things, right? Like you're you're mixing like kind of like a chemist and utilizing mm. food, and then you're making videos and. So, yeah. you know, so I don't think te pueden encajonar, como se dice, like a... Yeah, like pigeonhole you into a category. Yeah. Yeah, so I agree. Then... The thing is, the thing is, um, I think nowadays there's two things that are happening. Either you're becoming a total expert of something or you have to be some sort of renaissance man. And I find the latter much more interesting, you know. I don't want to be the total Agreed. expert. I don't want to be the total expert of the one thing. But again, it's what I was saying that I was sort of trained to do, you know. You 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 start to pick your own path and pick your own methodology and be able to pick and choose techniques from all sorts of disciplines where they make sense. Mm -hmm. So for example, I started to get really good at photography and video because I couldn't just rock up to a place and show them one of my sugar glasses because they only last a few hours. So if I didn't photograph them well, and if I didn't do a, a very compelling video, uh, there was nothing to show. So it was out of gone. Yeah, exactly. So this sort of ephemeral existence of food is what pushed me into being very obsessed about how things are presented and communicated. I love that. And I think it's important to mention that it's okay to be todo logo, you yeah. know, because that's something, for example, that I myself struggle with. Mm. I mean, I used to. Now I'm embracing it more. But I'm a photographer and I have this podcast and I'm also a graphic designer. And yeah. I do all this, like I dance, all these other things. And for a while, people were like, but what do you do? Yeah. And I was like, well, I do all the things and you have to get over it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And so it's it's really good to hear from someone else who does all the things and it's completely okay with it. And I think that will inspire other people as well to embrace all their talents because why focus on one thing when you can do all the things? I agree. But I guess at the same time, I mean, if I was to give advice to someone young that is just starting, unfortunately, when you're starting, you do have to pick one. Yes. Uh, you can make, you can, you can use, one. well, no, just how you describe yourself. It's really funny, actually. It's really funny <laughs> because 
I was, um, I mean, eventually I got good enough in photography to actually start doing jobs with it and, and, and paid well for it and, and shoot for pretty respectable magazines and, you know, design studios and, and everything. So I became, I became known as the guy that, you know, could design and had the eye for design, but could also photograph. But if I had to explain what I did to someone and I started saying, I do this and that, and you know, they would say, okay, this guy's, this guy's, a, this guy's a student. Crazy. You know? Yeah. Or he's a total amateur, you know, he doesn't know what he's doing. Right. So right. I think, I think you need to kind of gauge the client and the person that you're talking to. And if you know that he's going to be more interested in your photography skills, then just sell yourself, sell yourself as a photographer. If you're talking to a chef, you know, why would he be interested in whether you can take photos or not? Just say you work with food, you know? So I think definitely be a, a jack of all trades, but pick your battles. <laughs> totally. And I mean, at the same, yes, I agree 100%. And what, I, what I've been doing and what I've learned to do is really ask people questions mm -hmm. and find out first what they need and then offer what I can, how I can help, you know, and then go from there because, and I, one of the things that I read about you that I thought it was like super cool that I do too, is you just call yourself a designer. Right. Yeah. And then when people ex like what kind of design that you can explore, exactly. and you can really dive deep and, and give them all the things. But at first you present yourself and if somebody wants to say, okay, that's cool and move on, that's it. Yeah. And I think, I think it depends where you are as well. You know, I think, and um, I mean, I don't know, cause I haven't been that much professionally in the United States, but in Mexico, they're not used to this sort of polymath approach to things. So over there, you know, mm -hmm. if you're a designer, you're only a, a, an industrial designer. And if you're a photographer, right. you only photograph, I don't know, like the one thing. People. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> So, um, so I think it's, uh, you know, uh, it, 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 in Europe, it's a little bit easier to, to take this approach of I do kind of any, every, everything, you know, being a polymath. Yeah. But it, 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 it also, it's sort of dictated by the workplace as well. Um, you know, most, most of my designer friends, actually most of the people in the creative industry, my age in London don't have a stable job. No one's employed. So everyone's so a freelancer. So how do they survive? Well, you freelance. Okay. You're a freelancer. Super interesting. Okay. So let's have a coffee break. And how do you like your coffee? What type of coffee do you drink? Uh, I really like Italian style coffee. I have a... I have a sort of a, a stovetop um, Bialetti style mocha okay. um, coffee that oh, I have every morning. You're in Italy right now. Oh, my gosh. I am in Italy right now, but even when I'm in London, um, that's how I drink my coffee in the morning. And then, yeah, well, you know, I've been in Italy for three months now, and definitely, I mean, I love the espresso culture uh, where for you just sure. go and, and you have the, you know, you have the coffee standing up at the at the bar at the counter, uh -huh. and you have a little chat. Uh -huh. You have a little chat with uh, the person next to you. I think that's such a unique thing. And um, ah, actually, this is a little fun fact of this espresso thing that I just uh, discovered. There's this really interesting concept of the caffè pagato, 
which uh, I mean in Spanish would be café pagado or in English paid coffee. So, yeah. for example, espressos here are, are normally maximum one euro. You know, if they charge you over a euro, it's like they're they're ripping you off. But yes. what often happens is you might you might have a, a coin of two euros. So you, you can often just leave the two euros to the to the barista and just say, I'm leaving a paid coffee. Oh, for the next person. For the next person. So if you are ever in trouble or for example, a lot of homeless people do this, you they go to a coffee and they say is there a paid coffee that's, you know, that are good Samaritan leave a paid coffee for someone in need. So um, nice. that is the idea that you should support your fellow <laughs> citizens uh, and because, yeah. because one day you might need it. And, uh, and I think that's a beautiful tradition. Agreed. I love it. So here in the States, one thing that they do is they start, they, it's called pay forward. Mm-hmm. And it typically starts with one person. So, and it's normally at drive throughs because people are going to, you know, here people drive all the time. Mm-hmm. It's not like Europe. And they go through drive through and they pay for the coffee and then they pay for the person behind them. Mm-hmm. So and that's the pay for it, right? So then the next person that arrives, their drink has been paid for it, And then they're like, okay, so I'll pay for the person behind me. And then it's a chain that begins and then somebody breaks it and then it's done, right? Mm. But it, this is super cool because you kind of leave it open to whoever needs it. Mm-hmm. That's nice. That's that's awesome. Yeah. Okay, well, the coffee that I'm having today comes from Copa Vida and it is a coffee shop in San Diego. I'm in San Diego, California, and it is a coffee shop that is located in downtown San Diego right next to a baseball is stadium (laughs) and i'm just having an almond milk latte i'm pretty boring and i Mm. I love espresso but if i i like drinking my coffee really slowly so i make them into lattes all right (laughs) nice i know because i work and i just kind of like sipping it and the espresso is too little (laughs) it's Mm. done real quick and then i get a super strong obviously but that's why that's why you have one every like couple of hours to be be really wired (laughs) oh my gosh (laughs) (laughs) that's that's awesome all right well let's get back to the show so we're back and so you've told us basically your kind of how you got started how you started exploring with foods and then I really want to know about your most recent project about the maize. Yeah. So tell me more about it. What What's going on with that? Maybe I'll be going, I'll, I'll be doing a, a little jumping in and out into the problem as a whole and the politics behind it because it's a bit complicated, but I'll, I'll try to interweave it <laughs> with how I'm okay, doing okay. the project. And so, I'll ask um, questions in between if I can. Perfect. So I was invited to do a residency, uh, weirdly enough, by the British Council. And this was aimed towards British artists, but the idea was to go to Mexico. Um, and the the topic of the residency was, was uh, well, the residency is called First Foods. And it's all about sort of the, the basic foods of the country. And... Um, 
I was sort of having a bit of a rough time in London. I don't know the the the, the winters there could be pretty devastating, and and I just I was feeling very homesick, and um, I wanted to spend some time in in Mexico. So when I got this opportunity, I I jumped straight on it, and it was uh it was a very incredible experience. It was it, it's a residency organized by the British Council with the Conaculta. And, uh, and it was located in a place called Casa, the Centro de las Artes de San Agustín. It's in a very okay. small rural town on the outskirts of Oaxaca City called San Agustín Etla. And the, the foundation is, is uh, an initiative by uh, a very famous artist, activist, and philanthropist called Francisco Toledo. And... Uh, the building is absolutely beautiful. It's a it's an old textile and paper making factory from the 1700s, a colonial Spanish building, and it was built in this in this hills because there was a lot of water around here, so they needed a lot of water to to dye all the textiles. So it's beautiful. It's this uh, 17th century building with uh, water mirrors and waterfalls all over the place, and you're in the middle of nowhere. It was great. It was all paid for could stay there for free for uh, three months and just completely detached from the city and just to focus on the topic of the, the, the basic foods of Mexico. So okay. naturally, the base of every Mexican food is, the, is, is corn. And I decided to focus on that. And I started to, to basically observe how sort of the relationship of, of, of corn the relationship that people had with corn in that in that very small community. So I started to follow and kind of work with this group of women, which make, make tortillas. And they have a, a really interesting system where they buy the corn locally and then they do the process of nixtamal, which is where you transform the corn grains with um, soda lime. And uh, basically... Basically, what you do is you, they put soda lime in in water. Soda lime is a bit like chalk or plaster, and it creates like an exothermic reaction when you mix it with water. And it basically changes the corn to a molecular level. It, it softens it. It releases a bunch of nutritional properties in it, uh, even change the color of it. And it gets it ready to be ground on the stone mill. And okay. Um, I mean, in San Diego, maybe you get some pretty authentic Mexican food, but in most places of the world outside of Mexico, it is because of this process in particular that Mexican food never tastes like Mexican food abroad. Right. Most, most, most places outside of Mexico use just corn flour or, I don't know, even wheat flour. But they, they, they very rarely do the nixtamal process, and it completely changes the flavor. Completely changed the flavor, completely changed the corn. And um, it is the reason why Mexicans can subsist on a mainly corn diet. Mm. If you don't do the nixtamal process, actually, corn is actually a really heavy grain to be eating. It, it, it almost hurts your stomach if you eat it too much. Right. Um, so it was really interesting to, to, to work with these women, see how they work. See how the, they do the next amount in the evening. And, and I was going with them at five in the morning the next day to grind the corn in the mill. And what's really interesting is that the mill is a communal, it's a communally owned machine. 
And uh, there's the millman, which grinds the corn for a price, but that money goes back into the town in the form of public works, budget for the festivities, all sorts of things. They get redistributed locally. And the tortilla ladies sell the tortilla back to the community. So there's this really nice microeconomy that that works there. Mm -hmm. And this is the case in most rural places in Mexico. It's this sort of like, I mean, in a way, it's one of the most like sort of pure ways of communism, you know? It's it's almost <laughs> yes. where it's almost where no one is really truly making any money more than anyone else, you know. There's just like a little circulation of services and and and, and money that gets fed back into the town, um, yes, which is like really a, interesting. And <laughs> everyone's think, okay with it. Yeah, everyone's okay with it. Yeah, of course, of course. And that's that's how you get the most authentic tortillas. Yes, the ones that are handmade, the ones that are hand nixtamalized. Uh, with true soda lime, which is made by burning uh, limestone. So, I mean, in Oaxaca, they even make their soda lime from scratch, which wow. is an amazing process. It takes three days to burn the stones and and make oh the Oh, my gosh. Lime. Yeah. So to make the humble tortilla, if you want to make it all the way from scratch, it takes, you know, three or four days. So it's a, it's a, it's a, it's an incredibly complex situation. And then... What's more special about it is the corn itself. And this is where I maybe would like to start to introduce the, the situation. So corn, corn is actually a really interesting plant, considered the first man-made plant. Wow. By this, I mean it's, it's the result of total human manipulation. So um, if you look at, at corn in, in, in nature, wild corn, it doesn't grow the way we know it. Wild corn uh, grows as, as a plant called teosintle. And it was about 9,000 years ago that uh, Mesoamericans, very early Mexicans, basically, figured out a way of, of, you know, beating it with a stone, making a powder, which would be like flour. And, you know, they could start to cook with it. And they started to basically selectively breed the, the seeds that would be more favorable for them. And very slowly tra tr started to transform the teosintle into what we know today as corn. So they made it. They made it bigger. They made a lot more grains on the on the stem. Teosintle was almost like a like a wheat or like a like a grass, you know, with very few grains. And it was through nine thousand years of of selective breeding that they made the corn of today. And through these thousands of years, they actually made an incredible diversity of corn. So, mm -hmm. for example, in Mexico now, different way, different types. Yeah, so officially in Mexico, there's 72 different varieties. It's crazy. 70, 72 different varieties. Each variety has been purposely bred for thousands of years to be grown in a particular soil and a particular altitude, to have a particular color and to have a particular taste. And this is very important for two reasons. Corn, being a man-made plant, has an immense taxing on the soil it uses a lot of the nutrients so if you don't grow the right kind of corn for the right kind of soil you exhaust the soil straight away and secondly this diversity of of, of colors and flavors is completely responsible for the richness of mexican cuisine 
you know, you don't use the same corn to make a tlacoyo that you use to make a tortilla. And even, mm -hmm. you know, you're going to fry a tortilla, you're going to use maybe more of a white corn. Whereas if you make a, a very thick, smaller tortilla, you're going to use a blue corn. So, you know, there's the Mexican cuisine really is very, it's, it's almost like Italian cuisine. You know, you're going to have different pastas in every different region and you're, you're going to have different sauces yeah. and the design, the design of every pasta is made to pick up a certain sauce. And it's exactly the same in Mexico. A tlacoya yeah. is going to be thicker, smaller, uh, triangular because of a, of a particular reason. A tortilla that is made for small tacos is going to be a certain size, you know, and so on and so on and so on. Mm -hmm. So what's happening basically is that unfortunately all of these native species of corn are under threat of disappearing in Mexico. And this has a, a very sort of complex political and economic reason behind it, which I could go into. <laughs> let's um, go into. Because a lot of people don't know. No, definitely. And especially people abroad, but Sadly enough, a lot of people in Mexico don't know about it either. Right. Why are they disappearing? They're disappearing because what happens with native corn is that it's still very uh, unpredictable in a way. You're never going to get a standardized size and a standardized color. And if you don't grow them in a particular way, you have chances of losing part of your crops, which is natural with every single plant, you know. Mm -hmm. Um you're going to have better years than other years. And, you're, you know, no two fruits should look like each other. It, it, you know, right. it's, a, it's, a, right. it's, it's, natural. it's natural that, you know, corn is going to grow in different sizes. And especially it's, if it's been something that has been sort of engineered by man through thousands of years. Mm. So um, what happens is because of uh, the, the very big shift towards supermarket consumption, we're trying to make corn that is standardized, that is a certain color, that is a certain size, and that can be easily harvested. Time, yeah. yeah. And also, there's been a really big shift from using corn for human consumption to using corn for feeding animals uh, and for making things like corn syrup and dextrose and sucroses for processed foods. Those are bad, yes, yes. So the number one pro uh, country producing corn in the world up to the 1950s was Mexico, producing and consuming. And then right after the 1950s, the United States started a massive industrialization program to, to industrialize corn. And with the aim of making sugar additives and for making ethanol and for feeding cows. So everything got industrialized. And what happened is that the, the price of corn became sort of a global phenomenon. There's a global demand for corn right now. Corn is the most planted grain in the world, more than rice and wheat, which is also something that not many people know. Um, yeah. So fluctuations in the market, you know, in China which is, by the way, the number two producer after the United States, can totally affect, for example, the, the, the price of corn in Mexico. And this was made even much more dramatic by the signing of NAFTA, of the Free Trade Agreement, mm. in 1994. Um, so what happened in, in 1994 was that uh, the United States was producing was overproducing corn, was producing way too much corn. 
And part of the negotiations of, of for the for the treaty of, uh, of for the free trade agreement was yes that Mexico could export goods and manufacturing services etc to the United States which is something that's been really publicized lately with Trump but mm-hmm. not many people talk about how the United States really pushed Mexico into deregulating uh, 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 deregulating the agricultural laws and the agricultural sector in Mexico corn was something that was very protected in Mexico and Mexico was very, very strict with what fertilizers, pesticides, and herbicides, essentially chemical additives you could put in in, in, in crops. It was mm-hmm. almost banned, really, before the 90s. But with the free trade agreement and this, this negotiation that happened, Mexico basically took all the industrial process of the United States. And it also opened the doors for a lot of imports from the states towards Mexico. No way. Yes. So, um, so the United States started doing what's called grain dumping, which was all the silos, the massive industrial silos filled with grains. They started to ship it to Mexico. But um, wow. what happened was it was really complicated for them to get Mexicans to eat this corn because it was completely different from Mexican corn. The way they found around it was that the U.S. Department of Agriculture started subsidizing that corn really heavily. So they started to import this corn to Mexico at 20% below their production costs. So they were they were essentially losing money by, by selling the For corn sure. so cheaply in Mexico. But that made the price of corn in Mexico drop by 66%. Wow. What happened was, imagine a farmer that was you know, completely dependent on their very small parcel of corn. From one year to the next, they essentially had to produce at least double the amount of corn if they wanted to stay in business or even break even because right. of global demand, right? So the only way to to achieve that was to adopt the industrial techniques of the United States, which were using genetically modified seeds uh, and using agrochemical additives. So fertilizers, pesticides, and herbicides. And this dramatically changed the way people harvest corn in Mexico. Uh, the way that it has always been done for thousands and thousands of years is, is, is a system called the milpa system. And the milpa system is essentially planting a grain of seed of, of, of corn with a grain of tomato and zucchini or courgette next to it or squash. Okay. And what happens is the corn grows up really quickly and then this other plants wrap around it and they fix uh, nitrogen back into the soil. So that keeps the, the soil fertile. But with, mm. with the use of herbicides especially, what happens is only the seeds that have been designed to withstand that amount of chemicals are able to grow and nothing else grows. And so, for example, you, one of the main companies selling both the genetically modified seeds and the herbicides is Monsanto. And they make a herbicide called Roundup, uh, which is uh, its main sort of chemical sub- uh, act. Uh, the the chemical component in it is a thing called a glyphosate, and glyphosate are completely banned in Europe. The European Union. Wow. There's no way you put you're putting glyphosate in Europe. But Mexico had to deregulate that if they wanted to sign sign the 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 NAFTA agreement. And and for example, Roundup is the kind of stuff that they use in 
military operations where they spraying cocaine and marijuana fields or poppy fields where they go with a with a plane and and spray this fertile uh, this uh, herbicide over all of these drug plantations and basically every plant it touches it kills so imagine that this is the main herbicide being used to grow corn and this is wow. this is all over the United States and unfortunately now the case of Mexico as well and i mean there was a big shift in the sort of more industrial production in Mexico but the more dramatic effect has been in the very small indigenous communities because it was these indigenous communities that were the people that were planting for self consumption not really for business and mm. basically this has completely changed the way they harvest corn and they just can't grow their natural heirloom varieties anymore so in a way they've been encouraged to swap their seeds for the genetically modified seeds to use herbicides and 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 pesticides and this has led to the soil not being fertile anymore so them That's being crazy. dependent on the fertilizers that the same company sell right uh, it's a business obviously it's a business so they uh, what, wow. what they do, what they do is basically they they lobby really hard with local politicians this was something that was really big in the early 2000s they would they would do a lot of lobbying in mexico and they would donate a bunch of money and infrastructure to uh, very rural areas where these agricultural programs would would go in and they would say look well, you'll increase your production to make money enough money to to feed your family we'll give you the tractors for free we'll give you the herbicides and the pesticides we'll give you everything uh but start planting this and obviously they have great results for a wow. few seasons, but after a few seasons they're completely hooked on this and they're completely dependent yeah. they don't have any more seeds and that's where the business starts and um and yeah it's 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 been really devastating and and i think one of the main problems as well is that this corn which is genetically modified uh and hybridized can cross pollinate with the native varieties so it is contaminating the genome of of this 9000 year old corn and is producing sterile hybrids that don't grow anymore it's been estimated by um scientists in mexico that about 80% of corn in mexico is now contaminated with american gmo and wow. it's particularly tragic because if this keeps going in 20 years we're going to lose most of of the original strains of corn yeah and this is this oh. is this is really devastating not only to the mexican cuisine but for everyone because a loss in diversity of seeds will essentially make us a lot more vulnerable to diseases and to epidemics mm -hmm. for crops in the future and if if we if we swap to monocultures you're just making this a very possible reality what 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 um agrochemical companies are doing is they're always fighting against bacteria and insects every year they have to update their chemicals to beat them because this plague grows so fast Mm -hmm. And there's a very high chance that you know there comes to a point where they can't beat them. And the only solution in those senses, in the in those cases, sorry, is to have a, a a very big variety of crops. Because if one fails, you have a backup of another crop that can you know that can survive. Wow. And you know to give you an excellent example that people in America are going to be very familiar with with is the potato famine in Ireland, where a million people starved to death. 
Mm. That's because they relied on the one kind of potato and, and potato only. So it's a, it's both a cultural problem and it's a, it's a problem really of, of food substance in the future. So going into the project, what I've been doing is I'm working with a small community in the, in the mountains of Puebla uh, with the okay. border of Aca. And this is, a, this is a really interesting story. It's a very small community called Tonawixla. The case of Tonawixla is a very sad one because even though they have always been very poor, they have always been able to feed themselves until about 10 years ago. And this is the case of a lot of the rural areas of Mexico. Because of this increase of the price, uh, sorry, this decrease of the price of corn and, and food crops in general because of overconsumption in the world and overproduction and the commodification of crops, they're not really able to make a living. And then now that they lost their seeds and they lost their fertile lands because they're depending on all these chemicals, they also lost the ability to feed themselves. Right. And that has had profound consequences in terms of migration, in terms of unemployment, and even in terms of crime, you know? So if you see when NAFTA was signed, the spike in immigration to the United States completely detonated. And that is not because of manufacturing jobs. That is not because they were looking, you know, like people don't enjoy crossing borders and risking their lives to go abroad. It's because they could literally not make a living anymore. Right. So it's all very interconnected. And it's very sad because, you know, when I went to Tona Wixla two years ago again, there are essentially no men left. All the men are either working in Mexico City or in the United States. And wow. this this is because they can't grow anything anymore. Their land is completely eroded because they've used all these herbicides that they don't know how to use. Mm. They're planting these genetically modified seeds and they don't know that they're planting genetically modified seeds because they don't understand what genetically modified means. Right. So it's a problem of, of them being at this crossroads of this tug of war that is happening in Mexico, you know, and that is really interesting in terms of the situation with the corn. The, 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 the problem of the of this uncertain future of native corn and the people that still harvest it with traditional methods is sort of a metaphor of this tug of war of Mexico of both trying to be a global player in terms of economy mm-hmm. and maintaining thousand year old traditions. Right. My proposal for this project was to basically use this diversity of the corn and translate it into objects. So as I mentioned, we have over 70 different kinds of corn, each of them with different colors. And those colors extend to the husks as well. So you have all these varieties of corns that have husks which are multicolored, you know, from mm-hmm. reds to purples to oranges to yellows to some of them almost blue or black, you know. And mm-hmm. and a single cob could, could have, you know, 20 different colors of, 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 of husks in there. And so what I've been doing is I've been, I've been doing veneering techniques, uh, which are normally applied to woodworking. So a veneer in woodworking is a, is a very fine shaving of wood that gets backed up uh, by a by a fire, fiber board underneath it. And then that can be used as a last layer on furniture. So, you know, most of furniture from like places like Ikea and things like that are cheap boards, which are covered by this last layer of wood that looks like fine wood, you know? Right. So I took that principle and I started to make my own veneers out of the corn husks with a technique that took me about two years to develop. And this 
this corn husk veneer can be laser cut. It can be worked as traditional wood veneer. And you can make a technical marquetry where you essentially create drawings on top of the surfaces of furniture using woods of different colors. You know, with woods, with woods you, you get different hues of, of browns and, and yellows. But with corn, you get literally as many colors as you can think of. And the grain patterns are always changing, are very different. Mm. So it's actually a really beautiful material to work with. And the objects that I've been making have been quite successful in London. So what I'm trying to do right now is to start sort of like a, mic a microeconomy in Tonawixla, in this place. Because what's interesting with them is that they finally sort of understood the problem. And they've signed up for government programs which are teaching them to regenerate the soil with ecological methods. And they've started to recover their soil and they're ready to start planting. So the very crucial thing right now it's to... And that's possible to do? To yes. To cover the soil? Yes. Okay. Yes. So uh, they're doing a, a really interesting program where they're reforesting a whole hill that was completely eroded using cactuses and basically doing a permaculture. So they're planting a lot of cactus, which uh, protects all the other plants from erosion and from livestock eating them and things like that. And then in between the cactus, they're, pl they're planting all of these different uh, kinds of plants which have been carefully curated and or, and chosen for you know their multi you know their particular nutrient fixing capacities yeah the soil is ready to start planting again they they planted in june and they're having their first harvest of native corn this december and i spoke to my good friend Antona Wixla and he's expecting i mean i was i was actually really really happy and proud of him because he's managed to revert his situation to the point where this year they're expecting as many crops as with the chemical additives that they were using five years ago wow so okay. they, they so it can be done i mean it, it completely can be done the, the the only problem was that they were forced into that situation because of an economic shift Mm -hmm. But um, but in terms of production, there are definitely many, many ways of increasing your yield using traditional and natural methods. So I'm How really happy for them to recover the soil. Uh -huh. Five years. Wow. Yeah. So that's 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 the issue. That's that's yeah. the issue that for people that are living on the very edge of poverty, most most of them can't wait five years. Right. So the. Yeah, so the case of Tonawixla is sort of working mainly because of Delfino's F, uh, because it's really, really just him and two other people. And they've literally transformed two mountains. It's incredible wow. the amount of work that they So my, my intention right now is to help them by guaranteeing that they will get the financial reward they deserve for the amount of work that they put in. And because unfortunately right now corn prices are national and even global, mm -hmm. they can't really get more than a, than a fixed price. So this is where this extra sort of um, industry will come in really handy where by the powers of design <laughs> you can increase yes. the perceived value of something of something that is essentially going to either feeding goats or being burnt into something which is many times more valuable than the grain itself in terms of money mm. and the idea is to give them this independence this financial independence so that they can keep on planting the native seeds and feed themselves instead of 
selling them off for money. Because what I don't want to start happening is what has happened, for example, in places like Peru, where yes, uh, quinoa has become this amazing superfood because it became trendy in Europe and the United States. But now people in Peru can afford to eat quinoa, you know? Yes. So I don't, I don't want the same thing to happen to the heirloom corn, you know? So this is why totally. it's That's really crazy. interesting to create a, a project which, which is creating this additional income completely detached from the grain. Okay, so you're, you're to make it super, super clear, you're creating this design pieces and mm -hmm. selling them? Yeah, so the project is at, at the very first stage right now. So far, I have been producing pieces, design pieces, which I do myself by hand in London, using using the the husks that they are selling sending me from Mexico. From the and very they're sending them to you. Yeah, so they we did a a, a trial, a very first trial uh, last year, where we had a very small quantity of corn of color, and I've used those leaves to develop my technique in London. So what I want to do right now is to expand this into a proper workshop where I train a group of people that are willing to basically become my partners. So I already have six six farmers on board. Nice. Because of the success of my video, it seems like I'm getting a lot more people to, to contribute. But the idea is to start small and to really iron out any kinks before I start to grow too fast. Because what I want to do is, is not to create a really big business out of it. What I want to do is to create a series of nucleus, you know, a series of micro businesses, mm -hmm. basically, that act perhaps under one single brand or under one single company, but they're all independent and locally, completely locally produced. Okay. Because this is the kind of thing which can start to perhaps help on the on the issue of migration as well. Uh, mm -hmm. the, the, the problem is that the younger generation especially has absolutely zero prospects of, of making money there out of agriculture. So mm -hmm. it's a way of reconnecting, especially the younger generation with the older to, to learn all the traditional techniques to keep trading and planting the native criollo corn. But also yeah. to learn, you know, how to produce this material and why not in a second state, also how to design. So, you know, for example, a lot of the a lot of the technique that I use, I, I, I use a laser cutter. Um, laser cutters so are cool. Yeah. So they're cut by laser. The, the, essentially, we make this this uh, sort of little sheets of corn and a corn veneer, which is flat and square mm -hmm. and to particular dimensions. And then we yeah. put in a, in a laser cutter and it all gets cut into little pieces. And, and then the same pattern gets cut over and over and over with all these different corn leaves, which are different colors. And then mm -hmm. everything gets recombined into one giant puzzle of, of different colors awesome. and becomes one big surface. And with that, you can cover furniture, you can cover walls, you can cover, you can do partitions. And, you know, we're, we're, we're thinking of, of, of all the applications that it could have. So with the implementation of this technology, of, of, of laser technology, comes IT as well. You know, you need a computer to be able to operate the, the machine. Mm -hmm. And with IT comes also reading and writing. And, you know, so the idea is to start to, to you know, like we described at the beginning, to use all of these different disciplines and techniques to make all of them polymaths as well. Yes. 
to make them both farmers, producers, designers, to implement education and, and, and basically to get them to be proud again of their corn, you know. Totally. And it just keep the economy there. Yeah. Elsewhere. yeah. So, for example, um, this first crop that we're this first harvest that we're having in December, it's mainly out of native corn, but white corn, just because it's for them is the mm. easiest to sell. And to give you some numbers, and this is the problem in in Mexico, the corn is is sold by by volume units of two hundred and fifty liters. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So, so they, they, you know, they take the grains out of the cob and then they may measure 250 liters and they get uh, 2,000 pesos, which is roughly $100 for 200. Oh my gosh. Which is about 300 kilos. Wow. Which is a third of a ton. So imagine, imagine spending six months of your life and all the costs and all the efforts to grow corn for $100. Yeah. Well, I mean, between all of them, $500. But I'm talking about six months of work. Right. That's insane. And the very tragic thing is that they're saying, we don't know. I mean, we are we totally took a gamble on this for harvest because when we go to the the centers, this, this sort of distribution centers that basically buy the corn from all these small farmers around and then they resell them to, you know, bigger clients, they're telling them, yeah, we're not going to buy this corn from you because it's less heavy than the industrial corn. <gasps> which is oh obviously my gosh. Which is obviously bullshit. I mean, for sure. I mean, what does that matter? Yeah, yeah. And it, if if it if it is less heavy, so what? Just pay them accordingly. But the problem is, these people in the distribution centers obviously are being paid by the big seed producers. Yes. To favor and to push this one product. So the best way to fight this thing, I think, in my opinion, and this is what we're doing for this first harvest, is to create a system where it's literally direct from the producer to client and an informed client. So what I'm doing is I am essentially pre-selling their harvest. So I'm, I've, nice. talked, I've talked to a couple of restaurants and again, thanks to the success of the video, I'm getting a lot of individual interest and it's almost going to be like a, like a Kickstarter thing. You know, you buy X amount of kilos and with you your part, <laughs> yeah, you have to wait until December and in December you get your harvest, which if you keep the grains dry, can last you a whole year. Wow. Uh, and then whenever you want to use tortillas, you just get the, the cal, the soda lime, and you make your nixtamal. And yes, it might take a little bit longer, but in Mexico, you can still do your nixtamal at home, which is just water, soda lime, and corn. Let it soak for a night. Mm -hmm. And every neighborhood has the mill. So you can take it to yeah. your local mill, you make your dough, and you make your tortillas. And you can be having pesticide-free native corn tortillas and you know as a bonus you're obviously supporting this community so cool could people in the u.s because a lot of my listeners live in the u.s and yeah. i think this is going to be so like eye-opening for them could mm. they support you from yeah here? yeah i mean i this is I, again this is all very very early so i think i think you saw my video because i i posted it online because i applied yes. for a competition in holland holland is incredibly progressive in their um, agricultural programs. And they're doing a sort of a competition where they mix agriculture and design and they 
they're going to do a, an award, which is essentially a monetary fund for a project that fills all these, ticks all these boxes, basically. So for that, right? yeah. yeah, so I'm, I'm on the I'm on the final three uh, projects. Nice. So if I'm successful with this competition and I get this, I'm going to get uh, a serious funding and this would really speed up the, 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 the project. So I think for this first harvest, it's going to be a little bit hard to get things to the United States. But for sure, for sure, things will be up and running for next June's harvest. And it's six, it takes six months. For the next one so it'd be it takes right. six months yeah well we're gonna start to, to to see if we can introduce some of the the black corns which only take three months to grow interesting so you, you know if you want to make black tortillas that's yeah. a different kind of corn and uh, uh, unfortunately this one doesn't last that long so you need to use it within the first month but <gasps> yeah no kidding. Totally do. Yeah. Thank you so much for diving deep and like really explaining everything that's going on. It's so eye opening. Yeah. And Pleasure. Thanks for like, having me. <laughs> I'm sorry if I ramble. No. Well, no, I think it's important because all of these things are not told and nobody's covering them. And just to think that here, I mean, there's a lot of Mexican stores and, and places where you can buy Mexican food. And just to think the type of like corn, like the tortillas that we're eating, how bad they are. Yeah. And the stuff that we've been consuming for years. Yeah. It's crazy. Okay. Yeah, it's 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 um corn corn is corn is one of the most uh harmful crops that you can buy if you're not careful where you're buying it from because most corn produced in the United States are made for livestock, not for human consumption. That's insane. So so you I mean you really Scary. should be looking at where you're getting your corn from. Yeah, it's 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 really terrible. <laughs> And but I mean, you know, it's like I think scary. yeah, and I think it's not all bad news. Like I think there is a change. There is more and more people being conscious about it in Mexico. And for example, there there was a total ban. So Mexico is the first country in all of the Americas, all of Latin America and North America, that completely banned genetically modified crops in 2013. So there was okay. there was such such a civil outrage and so many protests, and there was actually a civil a civil lawsuit started by a group of activists and chefs and uh it made all their way to the supreme court and they voted in favor so since 2013 it is completely illegal to plant genetically modified seeds in mexico in mexico but not in the u.s but not in the u.s and it's not illegal to sell them in mexico it's <gasps> illegal so so the problem is a lot of a lot of people in mexico are are sending well are getting grains from the United States and yes. planting them and and the the problem is that they're 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 planting them with their traditional ways aka planting them with their hands touching all these grains which are covered in chemicals and this has created you know like i mean you know all of these all of these industrial grains are designed to be planted by tract uh, you know like humans are never touching those grains and if you look right. at the at the bag of these uh, of the back of these bags they tell you don't touch them don't touch them with your bare hands if you touch your eyes call a doctor immediately all of these things and oh my God. and this was the this was the reality 2 years ago when i when i went to Tona Weeks line. It was really, really heartbreaking to see that this was happening because when I started to explain all the text behind the bag, you know, to make sure that they were reading it properly. Right. Well, first of all, I mean, how are they going to understand genetically modified? How do you, how do you yeah. explain that to them? And then secondly, sure. a lot of them, their first language is not Spanish. It's Mixteco. Right. Right. So, oh my gosh. You know, I mean, 
I was having troubles understanding the text in Spanish because mm -hmm. it was all mm -hmm. these legal, complicated gibberish, which took me a few reads to understand. And, you know, they either don't bother reading it or don't understand it because of the complexity of the language or because it's not their mother tongue, you know? So right. it's really, really, it's really terrible. And, and, and I think, I hope my project and these kinds of projects uh, just sort of start to put alarm bells around and, and, and start people getting mobilized. And, you know, if, if we manage to ban the, the planting, industrial planting of genetically modified crops in Mexico, I think we should be able to push for much more regulation and to go back totally. to what we had. I mean, you know, you can say a lot of things about Trump, but I think he's not completely wrong in the sense that we need to renegotiate uh, NAFTA. It's, it's also a terrible deal for Mexico and a terrible, mm -hmm. terrible deal for the agriculture in Mexico. Yeah, it's, I mean, that's insane. Oh my gosh. Okay, so, wow. You're at that. <laughs> blown. <laughs> Okay, so how can we support what you're doing? And again, this is from people that live in the U.S., but all of this is essentially affecting us. And that's when I was like, oh my gosh, let's talk about what you're doing because people don't understand how much it's like, yes, it's definitely something that happens, is happening in Mexico and your project is, is directly helping the agriculture there, but it's coming back, like... You said all of this genetically modified corn, we consume it here yeah. as well. Oh, you almost so, exclusively consume genetically modified corn. That's insane. I mean, unless you you're going to some Indian reservation in, in New Mexico or Arizona or, you know, like people are still planting heirloom corn. But all of the yellow and, and white corn that you consume, it's all genetically modified. Even the quote, quote, organic I don't know, maybe maybe not, but you have to really look into it because sometimes knows? it's very loosely labeled. Right. Uh, so I mean, the thing is, I mean, just as a final thing, um, genetically modified doesn't mean, doesn't equal bad necessarily, because we've been modifying corn from the very beginning of corn right. to the point where corn is completely dependent on the human hand. If you plant a grain of corn in the wild and, and it grows, unless you pick it from the stem, open the husks and individually remove the grains and put them back in the ground, it will just rot on the, on the stick. It's a plant that is completely dependent on men to grow. So to say that it's immoral to create genetically modified corn, there's an argument, there's a very valid argument that not really. The problem is the fact that they have patented the genome of corn to make, yeah. to make their genetically modified corn only their intellectual property, despite the fact that it can pollinate, you know, native corn. And then that means that the offspring belongs to them as well. Yeah. So that's terrible. And also the fact that they create a decimation of the land and of the other varieties on purpose to create a dependence on their products. I mean, that is the completely immoral, unethical and evil side of, of, of the whole situation. Not not genetically modified per se. Right. That's the idea behind That's insane. Okay. So how can we support you? <laughs> <laughs> so you can... Um, you can follow me on Instagram at Fernando Laposse, L-A-P-O-S-S-E, uh, where I will be giving updates on the project. Uh, my new designs will be up there. And very soon they're going to be online through sites like Pamono in Europe. And I'm looking for a distributor in the United States. At least in the, uh, within the next year, you can start by either buying 
design pieces made with this material because uh, about 40% of that was going to go back to the farmers. Okay. And then once we get that ball rolling, I mean, the problem is we can't go too fast because we need to wait right. for the plants. Uh, this is this is the problem that we're we're depending on an agricultural process, not on an industrial one. What is the beauty of agriculture? Exactly, you have to be patient. Yeah, exactly. So our second our second harvest, uh, which by then I hope everything is ready to run smoothly, will be in June. So that means that around August next year, you'll be able to pre-buy the corn okay. to get your 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 native corn directly sent to you and to keep buying the the design pieces from the second generation or the second crop. So for now, just uh, keep an eye on my Instagram, on my Facebook page, Fernando La Paz, or my website, www.fernandolapaz.com. Okay. And you hang out the most on Instagram? Yeah, Instagram or Facebook. Okay. Awesome. Anything else you want to add that I didn't ask? I think I guess try to get out of the city a little bit, get out of the city, reconnect with the people that put the food in your table and uh, talk to them and learn how to talk to them. Because uh, even though you might think that they're a little bit more simple minded, they actually have incredible wisdom and you can learn a lot about the food that you're eating and ultimately your culture in general. Definitely. For sure, so much history that's coming. Yeah, food, and and sure. and also and also, this is uh, you know what I talked about is concerning Mexico, but uh, you do have this culture still alive in the south of the United States and the parts that were mm -hmm. still Mexico not too long ago. So right. you know if you if you want to see the equivalent of you also have heirloom corn in in the United States. So go go to New Mexico, go to Arizona, uh, go to see the Pueblo Indians. You know the, the ones that are still maintaining their traditions, and you can get something similar over there. Right, and really see the difference. Yeah, and I guess as a as a as a last note, if you come to Mexico, please stay away from Cancun. Please stay away from Puerto. Get out of the resorts and go and try Thank to you for eat that. some authentic <laughs> food. Uh, burritos are an abomination of Tex-Mex. <laughs> Don't need some proper tortillas. They're not real. They're not Mexican. Okay, so the last two questions that I always ask my guests is, number one, do you have a remedio? And maybe we can just piggyback on your last thought, which is to go get out of the city and explore just kind of like the rural agricultural areas of where we are. Mm -hmm. Maybe. Or if you want to give another one, that's perfectly fine. And, well, do you, do you have another one? And then I'll ask you the last question. Yeah, just uh, be curious about things, you know? Um, I think a lot of how you can uh, gain knowledge is just by constantly asking questions. How, how did this happen? Where did it come from? And who made it? And how did they make it? Mm -hmm. And you'll learn a lot of things that way. For sure. Do you have a, the last question is, do you have a quote or a thought or a mantra that you want to leave us with? Mm, well, there's a, there's a saying in Mexico, which uh, has been, has become a little bit of a cliche, but it's, I think it's still very relevant. And, and it says, sin maíz no hay país. Mm, very nice. I love it. Okay. Well, Fernando, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for staying up late because it's late where you are and for sharing all the information that you are working on. It's super cool and important. I think it's, it's relevant and something that we can all do something about. Thank you. Thank you. Perfect. And I mean, I think it's important for the people here in the U.S. because they 
like the relationship that the United States has with food is completely different. Yeah. It's a business and that's why the mo like when I heard about your project I was like, "Oh my gosh, please let's talk about this." Yeah, I and don't and realize like but the th an analogy that I gave uh in a talk recently is imagine if I mean, because this will be the, the example for a for a Western or a white diet, you know. Imagine if tomorrow you had one at most two varieties of wheat, and so every like a baguette will taste the same as as a piece as a pizza and a pasta and a sourdough, and you had only one variety of bread. I mean, come on, that would totally kill so many cuisines yes right for sure yeah, what's happening yeah, totally. with corn and corn is the wheat of latin america so it's a, it's an incredibly important uh pursuit you know totally for sure and i mean one of the i think if not the first most popular food in the u.s is mexican food yeah well of course it's not real but a very still. twisted version of it but yeah <laughs> yes But they still use corn. Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, so, yeah. Okay. It's uh, it's it's just 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 really. I think I think it's important that you get the message across of really thinking about where our corn comes from, wherever we're eating it. Totally. Okay. Bueno, muchísimas gracias for your time. De nada. And see for for doing what you do. I think it's super super cool. And pero bueno, good luck with everything. Vale, Pam. Nos vemos. Estamos en contacto. Bye. Hasta luego. Bye. All right, guys, that was the interview with Fernando. And before I tell you about his win or not for this contest, I want to remind you about Podcasterio Fest. It's coming up, guys. And if you happen to listen to this episode way in 2019, then you probably missed it or you're probably looking forward to the 2019 Podcast Studio Fest. But if you're listening to this in 2017 and you're listening to this at the end of October, then Podcast Studio Fest is happening in November 19th, 2017. And Podcasterio, as a reminder, I'm sure you already know, if this event was created to amplify the Latinx voices of the podcast world and to allow all of us to come together as a community to discuss visibility and visibility and all the things that we do. We really want this event to be a community event, to feel like we're all family because this is, it really is what it is. We, as hosts, podcast hosts, we have a relationship with each other and if we haven't met each other, we still give each other respect and I think that this is important that we amplify this and we open it up for our listeners. This is not a competition, guys. It's all about those. Like I said it on my first episode, like we all continue to say it and we want to make sure that our voices are heard in every step of the way and every platform that we experience. Can't wait to meet you. Seriously, November 19th in Plaza de la Cultura y Artes in LA. Let me know if you're coming because I will be there and I'll give you a hug and super excited. This event, guys, is presented by Molcajete Dominguero. And if you haven't, if you are in LA and you haven't been to Molcajete, please make sure that you go. If the November 19th event is going to be the first one that you're going to attend, you're going to have a lot of fun. So for more information, 
Head over to Instagram, follow Café con Pan Podcast, follow at Podcasterio Fest, and follow at Molcaje de Dominguero. And all of us are announcing. And also, if you listen to any other Brown podcast that will be participating, they will announce it. And if your Brown podcast of choice is not participating in this event, let them know about Podcasterio and tell them to send us an email and we'll see what we can do. All right. Now, do you want to know if Fernando won this contest? Well, guess what? Muchas felicidades. Fernando won. He got the award. I'm so happy for him because this is a well-deserved prize and this is going to go towards helping the community and helping el maíz that is so important for our diet. And hopefully the implementation of this project will allow other projects to, to rise up like this that help agriculture families and and people to rise up and to continue the tradition so i'm super happy all right we're at the end of the episode don't forget to share this episode with someone that you love please subscribe to apple Podcasts if you are an apple user if not we're on stitcher Audioboom, or your podcast platform of choice. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, actually, I'm going to ask you to send me a DM. I like getting DMs. I think it's easier and quicker for me to respond, and it's also easier for the listeners because it's a little back and forth. If you, It almost feels like we're texting. Yeah, send me a DM at Gavagumpan Podcast on Instagram. Please follow Gavagumpan Podcast on Facebook. Join the Support Brand Podcast Facebook group. We have really interesting conversations there that you don't want to miss and if you really love me please support me on patreon patreon.com forward slash cafe podcast i have a patreon platform because this is a self-funded show and i need to pay bills guys and anything helps seriously and i'm totally appreciative i'll send you mail letters i believe in snail mail so if you want to get some letters for me drop in a little dollar a month plus i am going to start doing some cool stuff where i'm going to be teaching you about the things that I do, but more on that later. Thank you so much, Henry Castro, for the music. Head over to soundcloud.com forward slash Henry dash Castro dash one and find out more about his music. And listeners, thank you so much. If you made it all the way to this side of the episode, please stay shiny. Find all your favorite movies and shows faster with Xfinity. Just speak into the X1 voice remote to search across live TV, on demand, even Netflix and Prime Video. Now that's simple, easy, awesome. Switch to Xfinity today and get a great offer. You'll enjoy Xfinity X1, which gives you access to your favorite streaming apps like Netflix, YouTube, and now Prime Video. Go to Xfinity.com, call 1-800-XFINITY, or visit the store today to learn more. Restrictions apply. The Home Depot's making it easy to turn your favorite moment into the perfect color for any room with the Project Color app. Upload any image, then discover the colors and paint to match. Now you're a swipe and a click closer to everything you need for your next project. Explore the most popular colors and trending palettes to find your perfect paint. Get a colorful new experience with the Project Color app, then shop our best brands with gallons starting from just $25.97 at The Home Depot. More saving, more doing. U.S. only. See store for details.